0: Thank you Delta K, Arakul Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast series featuring writers from the 2021 festival lineup. These conversations were due to take place live in Byron Bay in August, but have been recorded digitally instead. In this session, produced in collaboration with Griffith Review, Sarah Santiles talks with Ashley Hay about her latest works. They discuss her essay Creation Stories, which appears in Griffith Review 73, Hay Utopia, as well as Sarah's new memoir, Stranger Care. Both books are available for purchase from the bookroom at Byron.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this slightly unexpected version of a Byron Writers' Festival conversation. My name's Ashley Hay, I'm the editor of Griffith Review, and it's my pleasure to be talking today with the award winning author and scholar. Sarah Senterlees. We had hoped to be having this conversation in August 2021 with at least one of us in Byron Bay and I do still dream of a day when we manage to have a conversation with both of us in the one place. But as is the way of the world at the moment we're delighted to be talking however we can about Sarah's wonderful book Stranger Care which is an absolutely stunning and heart-rending memoir of as she puts it loving what isn't ours and her recent essay for Griffith Review 73, Hey Utopia, which is called Creation Stories. I'd like to begin by thanking Delta K for that beautiful welcome to country and acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands on which I live and also the lands of the Griffith Review offices, the lands of the Yagara and Turbal people on either side of the Brisbane River. I'd like to acknowledge their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge too the extraordinary privilege of living on the lands for which they've cared so long. In the context of my line of work it feels important too to acknowledge the millennia of stories shared in this place and the privilege of sharing them however we can in these disrupted and disconnected times. I am an enormous fan of Sarah Centelli's work. She was immediately on my wish list of authors when we started imagining Hey Utopia, an edition of Griffith Review that would explore other ways the world could be. I was beside myself when she said she'd be available To work with us and beside myself too, because the essay for us coincided not only with the publication Window for Stranger Care, her new book, but also a rather significant change in her own life. I want to tell you that the first time I saw Sarah speak, she was talking about her extraordinary earlier book, Draw Your Weapons, with Geordie Williamson and Teju Cole at the Adelaide Writers Week. Draw Your Weapons is a book about peace and war, imagery and violence. Conscientious Objectors and the Devastatingly Remote and Perennial Ways of Warfare. Now, it's a macrocosmic kind of book, a book with a vast canvas and a breathtaking scope and scale. And as Sarah was talking at that event, there was some crazy car race going on in the streets of Adelaide. And it was as if the whole audience was under attack by a sort of phalanx of fighter jets that had risen from the pages of Draw Your Weapons. It remains one of the most extraordinary conversations I've ever been privileged to hear. I tell you that now partly because I want to use it to step into the scope and scale of Stranger Care, a memoir of loving what isn't ours. Because while there are ways in in, in which this book is just as macrocosmic, just as vast and universal, It's also really important to say that this book is incredibly intimate as well. It's the story of Sarah and her husband, Eric, and their journey through the opportunity of becoming foster carers for one small child, just three days old, and the life they share with her in the months after that, providers that is of stranger care. It's a story of love and hope and impossibility and bureaucracy and optimism and realisation, a story of impermanence and grief, exuberance and generosity. So, I wanted to start, Sarah, by asking you about the imaginative or creative shift that existed between Draw Your Weapons and Stranger Care. These are both books that you inhabit, that you live in as a writer, which is part of what makes them so powerful for readers, I think. But was there a change of gear or of scale for you moving from the global of warfare, in a sense, to the particularly personal? Or do the two books, the two narratives, Feel more complementary, more part of one continuum?
2: That's such a good question, Ashley. Thank you. And thank you for that beautiful introduction. And I'm so happy to be talking with you, although I too wish we were in Byron Bay. I think I wrote another book primarily to go back to Byron Bay in the hopes that I would get invited back there. But uh, thank you for your generous and kind words. And I'm talking with you from Idaho and the lands of the Shoshone Bannock um, tribes. And I just thought your acknowledgement of place and story was really beautiful as well. So thank you for that. Um, I haven't been asked about the relationship between draw your weapons and stranger care. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because I think um, draw your weapons is asking the question, what are we to do in the face of violence that feels like it can't be stopped? Is there anything that human beings can do that might make a difference and can art make a difference? Does art have a role to play in, in, um, being a bomb to violence, or being a, a salve, or, or an antidote, or offering another way to view the world, or reminding us that we have agency as artists and creators to, to make a different, more just, more life-giving world. I think Stranger Care is asking that exact same question, um, although on the scale of one child, one family, one place. Um, there's a moment in in stranger care where we get a call for a little boy. Um, When you become a foster parent, when you become a certified licensed foster parent, your phone starts ringing and there are social workers on the other end asking you if you're ready to care for a child in need. And as we prepared, um, Eric and I live in in a place called the Wood River Valley. Um, That's several towns in this beautiful mountain valley. And we've been told that most children don't come into care where we live, that they would be coming from other parts of Idaho, other parts of our state. Um, but this little boy lived less than five miles from our house. And he, at first they told us he was a baby. Then they told us he was one years old. Then it turned out he was three years old. And um, at first we said yes, before we knew what his needs were. And then we realized he had needs that were greater than what we would be able to to meet. And we said, no. Um, and that was a, an extremely shattering experience for me because of all the work and intellectual writing I'd been doing in Draw Your Weapons before that, where I, I had really been saying it's our responsibility as human beings to respond to images of people in pain. Now here was a real boy in pain in my town, and I was saying no. Um, so it kind of threw into question, who am I? What kind of human am I? What am I capable of? What does it mean to say no? Uh, Does this somehow invalidate all the other writing that I've done that I get this phone call and I I say no? Um, At the same time, it turned out that the person who said yes to that little boy was way better suited than Eric and I would be for caring for him. Um, She had more tools at her disposal. She's a physical therapist and an occupational therapist and could meet his needs. So it also made me think about that, uh, my own sense of... um, it always depends on me or I'm the one people are waiting for. You know, it was a decentering in really important ways and shattering in really important ways. But I think it was in that moment that I started to see the link between Dryer Weapons and Stranger Care, which is how do we respond to the world? Um, When there's a person in need, what do we do? What are our obligations to each other? What are our obligations to the stranger? And at the heart of the book is one particular stranger, a three-day-old baby girl who I call Coco and her birth mother, who I call Evelyn.
1: I was very taken by the subtitle of Stranger Care, um, which is a memoir of loving what isn't ours, in part because of the wonderful analogy that you draw very early on about that star stuff that we're all made of, Um, as in everything, not just every human, and the extraordinary definition of family that you necessarily reach if you follow that idea to its logical conclusion, that's that's some kind of scale, some kind mm-hmm. of um, <laughs> opportunity to sit with, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's a, a better version of the cosmic than war to go with stars. Um, you know, Draw Your Weapons is about war and, and violence and unceasing violence um, and art, kind of large scale art questions about art and the cosmic, the sense of the cosmic in this book is what you talk about, stardust. I wrote. I wrote Stranger Care as a love letter to Coco. I wanted her to know if she ever read this book, that if we're all made of the same material, you know, child, rock, uh, human, enemy, refugee, plant, mountain, river, if we're all come from stardust, then no matter where she finds herself, she's never far from home. And so that, that was the kind of cosmic, Um, answer I was looking for I I sometimes in my workshops lead my students through an exercise that I learned from the writer Lacey Johnson an American writer called um, mania mystery mastery and so mania is what you can't stop thinking about you know what you trouble in your pocket like a stone um, and you're supposed to generate a big list of that and for stranger care it was like am I a mother? What makes a mother? What makes a family? Are we, are we related? If I don't have a child anymore in my care, am I, am I still a mother? Does that disappear? Can it be taken away? Um, What makes someone kin? What if kinship were a practice? So those kinds of questions. Um, And I was also obsessed with trees and stars and whales and rivers, which show up (laughs) on the pages of the book. But so that's mania. And then mystery or questions that you ask that you don't have answers to. And then mastery is what you know. So for me, the questions were those questions. What makes someone related? What, what makes someone a mother? What does it mean to be kin? Um, is mothering an action or is it a noun? Does it depend on biology or can it, can it be something else? Um, and the thing that mastery is what you know to be true. And the only thing I knew to be true was that we come from the stars. And that gave me peace um, throughout this, this whole experience and the writing of this book.
1: I have to say that the idea of um, kinship as a practice is one of the most um, beautiful and uh, potential ideas uh, to, to again sort of think into and embrace. And, and I think I loved your insistence on embracing that or, or identifying with all of those others in part because it took me back to an essay that you'd written for Lithub, which has become a kind of touchstone piece for me. It's some, a piece that I reread often. It's a piece that I quote all over the place. I have a feeling I've quoted it in other introductions to Griffith Review editions. <laughs> um, but it, it works against the sort of pat or shorthand idea of empathy in pointing out that, you know, empathy often talks about requiring us to find common ground with another person or another story in order to relate to or feel for that person or that moment. But as you wrote in that piece, empathy depends on perceived likeness, a sense of sameness. Now, the subtitle for that essay was we're going to have to get radical with our idea of the other. Can you talk to us about what you mean by both radical and other there in the first place? Because I, I really saw the ways that the tendrils of that thinking Um, fed through so much of the story that you had to bring onto the page for stranger care Um,
2: yes so radical radical I I went to divinity school I have a master's of divinity and a doctorate in theology and radical is like a pet term for all divinity students we like to talk about the real meaning of radical which means like at the root you know going to the root of something and um, and and interrogating and investigating the concept from the roots. And I didn't make that subtitle, but I think that that's what what they're talking about. And otherness for me, you know, this is part of, I I wrote my dissertation on the torture photographs um, taken at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. And people were referring to those images as crucifixion images. And I was a doctoral student in the study of theology. So I wanted to know like, what is this, story of Jesus's crucifixion, of the torture of of one man doing when it's imposed on the bodies of other men, of Muslim men? Is it going to help us respond ethically mm-hmm. to these images, or is it going to somehow um, make us think that the violence is salvific and shouldn't be stopped? And so that that was kind of the seed for my, for my work. And when I started thinking about that, I started thinking a lot about empathy and people's responses to images of pain and how if we perceive someone as somehow not like us, um, then we might be less likely to respond in an ethical way. And I started paying attention to the kinds of images that are shown in the news. In the United States, we only see the images of black and brown people, either from other countries or from the United States. We don't see the dead and suffering bodies of white Americans. It's like not, it's not something that happens. So then I started wondering, Was it seeing the images of others themselves that was the othering act? There was something Mm -hmm. about the image existing at all because we don't don't see images of dead Americans. So if you do see the image of a dead person, already it's othered because it's not you. You're not going to see a white person. So there's something inherently strange or alienating or dehumanizing about the image existing in the first place. Um, So that led me to thinking about, well, I don't think we need that much help behaving ethically when we can recognize someone as not as as like us but we do need help when we can we we don't recognize someone as like us and that drew me to the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas which is really where my sense of otherness comes into play um Levinas his family was killed in the Holocaust. um, And he dedicated his life to trying to come up with a philosophical system that would make another genocide impossible. And his answer to that was this sense of radical otherness that um, when you confront a person who might not even count as a person, a life that you might not even recognize as a life, when it scares you, when you feel, feel your own life is at risk, then that is the sign that you're in the presence of God and the that that otherness must be protected at all costs even at the cost of losing your own life because it's divine. So I'd been thinking about this and talking about this and giving lectures about this and then I became Coco's foster mother. This is a really long way around your question but I became No, not Coco's, at all. <laughs> I became Coco's foster mother and and we were called in that system stranger care, which is where the title of the book comes from. It's um a non-relative care provider or stranger care. And I thought that the other that I was going to be called to take care of was going to be Coco. Um, but that was really easy. Our love for her was immediate. I mean, literally immediate. The nurse put her less than five pound body in my arms and I felt like I belonged to her immediately. There was no There was no waiting period. It was a deep, fierce attachment the other that I had to confront was her birth mother, Evelyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to understand that, and it took me a long time, and it, it's still a practice for me, that um, to love Coco meant I had to love Evelyn. And here was this person that I had no common ground with. You know, Everything in our lives, from addiction to economics to education to class, uh, was, was meant to keep us apart. But now we loved the same girl. Um, that was our common ground. Coco was our common ground. So I had to learn how to love her, um, and that that proved more challenging um, and made me call on um, exactly this idea that Levinas is asking for: that when you confront the person who put your own life in question, what are you going to do?
1: I think the in a way the sections uh, in the book that you know, where you write about um, your exploration of your own feelings about Evelyn and your own relationship with Evelyn and your own um almost your own responsibilities towards her. And as you say, the practice of understanding that loving her is part of part of the deal. Um and the relationship that you form with her over time, in a lot of ways, they are the most profoundly generous and moving in the book. As you say, Coco's the no-brainer. She's this, you know, gorgeous little thing that requires you to hold her and and show her the world, and that's a really easy thing compared to, you know, meeting someone in such a different space. Um, you know, there there are a number of uh, moments of your exchanges with Evelyn in the book, which I won't, you know, I, it's it's a sort of a spoilery thing. They're just so beautiful to to come across the development of it's it's not a friendship, but it's a it's a relationship, I guess, um, that are just stunning. And I think the the honesty with which you put yourself on the page. Um, and your work on the page around that is is one of the really extraordinary parts of the book. One of the other things that I loved about Stranger Care, and I, I say this as a writer as well as a reader, was its structure, its its form. It's comprised of these very short sections, some of which are almost like poems or notes or maybe koans of Buddhism somehow. Um, and through these, you create this beautiful sort of mosaic around the story at the book's core. And, you know, as you say, you are interested in trees and stars. You've got, you know, the natural world more broadly, one very particular elk that I will never stop thinking about now that I have encountered it. Um, but you're also forming this mosaic from bodies, from friendships, from photographs, these beliefs about kinship and connection in different culture the reports of some really fascinating um, scientific experiments that have sought to understand development and nature and nurture and, and fear and love, um, there's an elegant sense of bower birding in this. Do you know this Australian bird, yes. the bower bird I that gathers up all the, yes. all the beautiful blue <laughs> things for it show off yes. in its nest? I wanted to talk to you about how the book found that shape um, and whether that particular shape helped you in a particular way to accommodate the very, very large and deeply intimate and personal story that sits at its core.
2: Hmm. I, I knew that I was writing the most intimate story that I've ever written. And I also knew it was a difficult story. I was writing it as I was living it. Hmm. Um, And I wanted it to go from being that intimate kind of pointed view towards me and then open to the wider world and then go back to the intimate and the wider world. Part of it was because um, it was nature. It was living in this beautiful mountain place that helped me survive um, this experience. A friend of mine who read the book, she said, I love the way in the beginning of the book you're looking to the natural world for evidence of stranger care, for evidence of strangers caring for each other in the natural world, and then by the end of the world, uh, by the end of the book, nature is taking care of you. Mm. I was like, "Oh yeah, I love how I did that too." <laughs> yeah, so I, I totally I meant. that. I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't know I did that, but it, it's true. Nature was taking care of me. Um, so there were there were three things that helped me make my way through this experience. One was writing writing itself i got to exercise a kind of agency that i didn't experience in in what was happening with coco i felt deep helplessness in that experience and i had agency on the page that i didn't have in my life the second was hiking um with friends and and being in the mountains and being part of of the world where we live and um remembering the scale of time <laughs> that my story is small that coco's story um though it it feels infinite to me is we are just one part of a of a larger whole. You know, when I when I stopped being Christian, people always said to me, Don't you miss the sense of something bigger than yourself? And I I wanted to always say, like, have you been outside? Have you looked at, <laughs> have the, you night looked at the sky? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> have you looked at the stars? Um, there there's a huge sense of Im- infinite and perspective. Like the the way, the good good work, I think the word God can do, which I learned from my mentor Gordon Kaufman is be a relativizing force, remind us that our our ideas, our concepts, our actions are always limited and warped and bent by our own biases. And Mm -hmm. I I think that the natural world does that as well. And natural world is such a weird phrase, the world. The world does that as well, understanding yourself as part of the world. And then the third thing was being an activist. I helped found a nonprofit here called the Alliance of Idaho that protects the human rights of immigrants. So while the social service system was working really hard to reunify Coco and Evelyn, um, our government in the United States was working really hard to separate families at the border. Um, Mm -hmm. So the question of which families belong together, which families do we fight to keep together, which family relationships do we see as family relationships was a real live one uh, for me and in our political situation. So all of that is to say that Um, I shaped the book that way to remember that my heartbreak isn't the only heartbreak that there's um, heartbreak everywhere in the, the little Robin fledgling that gets trapped in our window well. And then the child whose father dies swimming across the border and then the trees that are getting cut down um, to build the houses that we all live in. Um, So that was, that was one thing that was important to me. was that movement from, from, my story to the wider world. Um, And then the other part that's important to me that's also connected, I think, to Levinas and this this question of otherness is and the relativizing force of good theology is to remember that um, my portrayal of people is also flawed and that what I write about Evelyn isn't all there is to say about Evelyn. What I write about Coco isn't all there is to say about Coco. And that's a question that I carry with myself as a writer all the time. How do how do I make form function in an ethical way? How do I help, mm-hmm. how do I let the page do ethical work? And how I chose to do that here is through white space. And draw your weapons, I have it's a lot of fragments knit together. And here too, there's smaller sections with white space in between. And for me, that page break is a reminder of the limits of my own thinking and the failure of my own language and portrayal. Um, that's an important thing to me is, is um, how, to show, how to show on the page that my story is only one of many possible stories.
1: I think it's one of the really um, delicate successes of Stranger Care is that it works at this level not just of witnessing, which all storytelling, you know, has at its heart, but there's an incredible sense of honouring as well. Mm. Um, and and I think even just in, in hearing you talk about the space, the way that works for the reader is that you, you know, your your eye is sort of sweeping down a page and it's, it is these moments of pause mm. that require you, you're not just running, stepping into the next part of the narrative. There is this sort of almost this breath where you have to say, you have to reflect on your own response, or you have to reflect mm. on, um, you have to reflect on what else is possible in that space, which is a really beautiful thing to see brought so actively into mm. um, a sort of storytelling. I think
2: I, I'm glad it reads that way because I, I think a lot of times as writers we underestimate our readers. We want mm. to tell them what to think um, and how to feel. And part of what's important to me writing, and it takes a lot of editing to get there and a lot of discipline and a lot of um, partnership with good editors is I I want to strip from the page um, my own judgments. I want to leave room for the reader to make her decisions about what they think is happening. I want to make room for the reader to see the mistakes that I make. Um, I want to make room for the reader to make connections among the things that I'm putting next to each other. Um, And so that feels important to me. It also feels important if you're going to tell a difficult story to offer something in return. Um, And so what I offer, what I try to offer is that space for breath um, beautiful stories about birds and trees and whales um, and, and, respect. Uh, to the reader that that she can make her own decision about what's happening in that in the book
1: um I want to talk a little bit about the opposite of the white space now which is at the idea of collision um Mm. I feel like I'm talking about a collision at a scale of you know sort of tectonic plates here because Mm. there's intention and care on the one hand there's bureaucracy and regulation on the other. Um, it feels like there's a collision between humanity and I, I couldn't think of any other word than just nonsense at some times <laughs> um, there's you know protections and paradoxes and I wanted to ask whether the act of writing of, and as I say of witnessing or recording or ordering or understanding in a way part of your sense of surviving, the experiences of going through the foster system you've mentioned that already in terms of you know just allowing you to have a sense of agency on the page and I guess where I'm heading to with this is was it a way of giving you not just you know that agency in those moments but a way of remaking the idea of the Mm -hmm. world that you were navigating at that time Mm -hmm.
2: First of all, you are the best reader ever. Like that list, of the, you are such a careful reader. It's such an honor and a gift to be in conversation with you oh, and to have you turn you, your attention Sarah. towards my work. I feel really, um, really, really grateful. Thank you for that. Um, it, when you said collision, I wrote in my notebook, I'm, I'm taking notes while, while you're asking me questions. Um, moon, the moon. I, I called this book... While I was working on it, the working title was The Moon Book. I never told anybody that that was my working title, and I didn't quite understand why I was calling it The Moon Book, but I'm obsessed with The Moon as part of it. But I, I just had this sense, this has something to do with The Moon. I don't understand what it is, but I'm going to go ahead and call it The Moon Book. And it wasn't until I wrote the epilogue, which is kind of the aftermath, and there was we had a huge debate um, at Random House about weather, whether whether to include the epilogue or not ended Mm -hmm. up including it. And I'm really glad that we did, but I write about the moon and this collision theory, giant impact theory of how the moon formed um, this idea of there was an earth, there was earth and then another planet that built of the same material of earth and they collided. And then the moon is kind of the, the result of that collision. Um, And the question for me is like, what, who's the debris in the story that I'm telling about Coco, who, which of us is the debris? <clears throat> Excuse me. Is it me? Is it Coco? Is it Evelyn? Is it sense of justice? Is it something else altogether? Um, what is it? And so that, that central idea of collision is a really, is a great, great word on your, on your part. Um, you know, I, I think of of juxtaposition as formally how I write. Um, I, I'm inspired by the artist Fred Wilson um, and his, exhibit Mining the Museum in Baltimore, and how he put together objects from that museum to make an argument by placement and by proximity. I'm interested in how, as writers and as artists, we can put things together that we're trained to keep apart. You know, it's in the putting together that violence becomes visible in a new way, or the putting together that intentionality becomes visible in a new way. So the, the piece I think of always with Wilson is um, he put together these intricate silver, like silver goblets, sugar bowls, vases next to manacles that were used um, to uh, to make to immobilize enslaved people mm-hmm. and called it metalwork um, and there's there's putting those beautiful objects together with the manacles that were made in the same years the violence of slavery and its dependence on wealth or wealth's dependence on slavery becomes visible in a way that wouldn't when those objects are kept apart and we think of them as separate. Separate. So what I wanted to do in Draw Your Weapons and in Stranger Care is, okay, let's put things next to each other that we don't usually think of as next to each other, which is connected to your question about kinship and, and thinking about everything as related. Um, if we're all made of stars, then you can put sh- you can put things close to each other because we're kin, Were related, Um, and so I wanted to transcend or cross the boundaries that we use to define. uh, This is my family; that is not my family. These are my people; that is not my people. This is my tribe; that is not my tribe. This is my nation; that is not my nation. I wanted to offer something different, Um, but the collision part of juxtaposition is is what you're talking about. Like I think one of the main collisions, which came up in a conversation that I had with the writer, Leslie Jamison is between bureaucracy and love. Mm. Um, you know, she asked me, how do you write love? Um, and when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about how bureaucracy does, does not write love. Um, and it made me think of the first time I met Evelyn. This is, and this is the central collision in the book. You know, her, her daughter, Coco, had been living with Eric and me for two weeks and we'd never met her. She'd never met the strangers taking care of her child. The first time she met us was outside a courtroom. Um, And then we waited in line together to go through metal detectors. And then she asked if she could hold her daughter. And I handed her her five-pound baby girl that she hadn't seen for two weeks. And her body still had signs of pregnancy. Her breasts were still making milk. And she just held this little girl in that courtroom hallway and whispered, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You know, I had... We had been told that we would get to keep Coco, and that's what I wanted more than anything. And now here we were colliding with her mother who wanted her back, mm-hmm. um, and that collision is at the center. And what it does to my, my sense of myself in the world, what it does to my sense of obligation, what it does to my sense of children trapped in this horrific bureaucratic system, um, that's really the kind of the beating heart of the book.
1: I want to come back to that collision between bureaucracy and love, but I want to just pick up um, this idea of, you know, how we're making the world because it gives me a really sneaky way to talk about creation stories, the beautiful essay that you you wrote for us as part of Hey Utopia. Um, and I wanted to explore what was for me one of the most exciting exciting points in that piece, exciting not just in the context of that essay but as a sort of crucial spine for the collection as a whole. You were writing, when we make art, a sentence, a loaf of bread, garden, painting, we exercise the muscles we need to remake the world. We remember it's possible to create something new. And you're quoting the American essayist um, Elaine Scarry, who calls the creation of an artefact a fragment of world alteration. If individuals can make these smaller changes with a painting or a sentence, if one person can alter the world in fragments, Just think what can be imagined together, what might be possible in community, a total reinvention of the world. Now, there's both potential and an extraordinary kind of validation for any of Mm. us who are involved in this work, in this idea. Can you talk about how it resonates for you? And and I'm asking that partly in the context of your work but also in the context of your living and of the experience that you would have necessarily been, you know, navigating Having Coco come into your life, having Evelyn come into your life—that you you share with us in Stranger Care—I
2: I remain convinced that making art, and I have a wide wide understanding of what a, a wide <laughs> cast a wide <laughs> net for what counts as art. You know, in that list, like garden, loaf of bread, um, caretaking, uh, tending someone who's ill, uh, writing, painting, sculpting, whatever it might be. I I think that it's through that introduction of the new when we realize I I can write a sentence that didn't exist before. Um, There was not a sentence, now there's a sentence um, that we remember that we have agency and the ability to alter the world. I think all art making is political, not because of content, but because of practice. Um, It gets back to that idea of kinship as a practice that when we're making art, we're exercising the muscles we need to remake the world because we're remembering We have agency to change the world. If you can change it with a painting, then you can change it with better housing policies. If you can change it with a loaf of bread, then you can change it with policies that end poverty and and hunger. Um, For me, artists show us that it's possible possible to make something different. They remind us that the world is made, and therefore it can be unmade and remade. Um, I think I write in that essay that I wrote for you about Uh, Gordon Kaufman, who I've talked about already, who's my mentor in graduate school. And he always used to tell me the version of God in Genesis is a painter and a poet. Um, I'm not a painter, a potter and a poet. Um, And he said, that doesn't tell us very much about God, but it tells us what those writers thought about artists. They knew their work was world making. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think of another teacher that I had, another mentor I had when I was in Divinity School named Karen King. And she always used to tell me that we live our lives as if the way we think about the world is the way the world is. Therefore, how we think about the world makes all the difference. And I think those two ideas—that artists' work is world-making, and that we live according to how we think about the world—that that's at the center of my work. Whether I'm writing a book, whether I'm parenting, whether I'm being an activist, whether I'm leading a writing workshop for writers or artists, um, <clears throat> and really why that feels important to me is I do a lot of different things in my life, like all of us. (laughs) And I used to struggle and think like, well, when I was, when I'm doing activism, I'm not being an artist. Or when I'm, when I'm teaching workshops, like, is that really my work? It is taking me away from being an artist. Um, And then I started understanding that all of those activities, my activism, my teaching and my writing are animated by the same question, which is, what difference can we make? <laughs> what difference can we make? Can we make any difference? And and I find the kind of seed or the anchor for that in, in artists' work, that we are all artists. We're all always making worlds. Um, and and when I was teaching, I used to teach at an art school in Portland. When I was teaching there, I just was so moved by the fact that my art students always understood their their work as constructed, as creative, they felt uh, responsible for the decisions they made about what kind of material to use, about what shape to make something, about how big to make something, about what what image to make, about how to paint the human body. They were accountable in a way that the theologians that I'd been trained with were not accountable for their work. Um, That I was not trained to be accountable as a theologian the way artists are trained to be accountable for the effects of their work. Um, And so that, I think that's, what has me committed to this idea that um, if we understand everything that we do in the world as a, as a practice of art making, then the question becomes um, what are we creating and who or what is affected by that? And how can we do better?
1: I think there's something lovely. I can remember talking to you when we began talking about the piece that would become creation stories about um, the creativity of parenting. I think it's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know, uh, I'd read so many things about the necessary disruption of creativity if you became a parent, and if you had a creative practice. Which, you know, having been in the game for the parenting game for 13 years now, I found really, <laughs> fa- I find really, continue to find really fascinating because it is, you know, the most extraordinary act of creativity, and and all those ideas of reframing life as creativity, as practice, as 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 intentional somehow. I think there's mm-hmm. um, there's an amazing sort of power and and um an opportunity in in that sort of space. I want to I want to sit with creation stories just for a little bit longer because one of the other really resonant and kind of energizing sections in the piece for me explores ideas of distraction and attention and you talk about um one way to impede activism to impede social justice work is to make sure that activists are continually distracted, um, continually outraged, continuing reacting. If you're distracted, you write right, it's really hard to dream up alternatives to the present reality. And you talk about the need not to disengage, not to say I'm opting out of the, you know, horrifically um, ongoing 24-hour news cycle, but rather to alter the kind of attention that you're paying to it. Can you talk a little bit more about these ideas of distraction and attention and the liberation in differently spotlighting the distinction, the opportunity of changing how you pay attention?
2: Mm-hmm. I, I first started thinking about that kind of during the Trump presidency <laughs> when um, – you know, a, a friend of mine had said, You can see what people value if you look at their bank accounts, kind of the idea being like how you spend your money. But I thought, mm. well, you can see what people value if you look into their brains and what they think about. And if you looked into my brain, you would think, I really valued Trump. <laughs> like, I <laughs> thought about him all the time. I was constantly re- refreshing my newsfeed to see, like, what is happening? What is he saying? What's happening next? What's happening next? Um, because it was so distressing and over the top all the time. Um, And in that context, there were some moments where I thought, "Well, I'm going to really sit down and write when when this is happening, when that is happening, when he's doing this, when they're doing this, when they're saying this. I'm going to write. Like, what's the point of that? There, w- there was a sense that um, artistic practice was up was in question, the validity mm. of it, the usefulness of it. Um, and I started thinking, well, when I'm writing. All I'm thinking about is writing. Uh, I know when people are working with clay, all they're thinking about is clay. When people are working with oil paint, they're thinking about oil paint. And I started thinking that that focus was an antidote to the kind of distraction that was being peddled um, by politicians, by the media, by by whoever, by whoever. Um, and that that focus, again, in the same way that I think art making all art is political, not because of content, but because of practice. I think. Art helps us also practice these um, these ways of being that are also political. I think focus is a political tool to choose what you want to spend your time paying attention to um to choose instead of focusing only on uh, what's wrong or what's terrifying to give yourself space and time to imagine what else might be possible to create, Mm -hmm. what kind of world you want to help bring into being? And I think art helps us practice that both the invention of the new or remembering other possible ways, remembering things don't have to be this way that it's not, that's not set in stone, that anything is possible, but that, that idea of focus um, returning our internal landscape to ourselves um isn't uh isn't a selfish act it's actually generous and generative um in the same way i've been thinking a lot about boundaries um you talked about parenting I've been thinking a lot about boundaries and how i'm sure you have <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> boundaries are framed as as also selfish in the same way that art is framed as selfish or as like useless or not something we should be doing and I think boundaries setting boundaries around our time setting boundaries around our practice sending boundaries about what's important to us is also a generous act because it gives other people permission to protect what matters to them and I think in in kind of the rape culture that we find ourselves in uh boundary setting and focus are also kind of anti-rape culture. It becomes mm-hmm. a way to be in, in charge of your internal landscape and um, to to uh, claim consent, to, to to give consent to what you want to spend your time doing and what you want to spend your time thinking about and what you want to spend your time protecting.
1: I want to come back um, to the the sort of mosaic of stranger care and the subjects it covers, and in particular, the world of trees that you weave through the story, the work of the Canadian scientist, Susan Simard, and the German forester, Peter Holborn, in particular. Now, I have to admit to spending quite a lot of time amongst trees, one way or another. Mm. I am completely captivated by the potential of community and communication that exists between these Utterly extraordinary, extraordinary beings that support supports them and that nurtures them. How did you find this work, and and how did it resonate particularly with the story of care that you were living and writing with Coco and her time with you?
2: I I too am. Um, I spend a lot of time with trees, and I am enamored, <laughs> and I um, am am humbled, and mm. uh, I think it's one of those primary examples where as humans, we misunderstand the world, um, in our, in our, our striving to make ourselves exceptional. Um, we insist that all the other beings we share the planet with aren't able to do what we're able to do. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, forget the fact that birds can fly and, and (laughs) whales and fish (laughs) can swim under the sea. I always think whenever a study comes out and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, uh, spiders think, or, uh, squirrels have memory. I'm like, no, everyone knew that except us. Everyone knew that the only person, the only being that looks idiotic is you, human, uh, for not knowing that. And I think trees are this this primary way. You know, the two books you talked about, the Suzanne Simard and the uh, Peter Wohlheim, and um, that that was mind blowing to me. That mm-hmm. trees communicate, trees remember, trees grieve, trees share information, trees cooperate, trees support um, other trees that are in distress trees, when they become in distress, share their resources with other trees so that those trees can survive. Um, that that made me look at the world in a new way, and it made me wonder, what else am I not seeing? Um, I remember right after I read that Bolhaven book, The Hidden, Hidden Life of Trees.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. Called? Yes, I think so. Um, yeah.
2: I was actually doing trail maintenance. I was volunteering to to do trail maintenance and they sent me out on a trail, one of my favorite trails in the Valley. And they gave me clippers and told me to cut the tree branches that were in the way of the, of the trail of uh, bike riders and hikers. And I, I just was, I just cut, I cut, I cut and I wept and I cut and I wept and and I cut and I wept. They were like, <laughs> Why did she come here? You know, what is she doing? But I was like, they feel this, you know, they are they feel this and they're telling each other there's someone coming who's cutting limbs. Um and uh for me that notion, there's a in the Suzanne Samard her her new book called Mother Tree, yeah. but I had read an, an essay about it where she asked the question, Do trees recognize their kin? Um, and she determines yes, trees recognize their kin, their offspring, um, and they tend them and they bring them resources or send resources through their root systems. But they also do that for strangers as well, for, for non-relative trees. They are non-relative care providers of stranger <laughs> care. Um, and so that became, um, I would say a symbol, but not that became a, an example of, of what it might look like if we were to live as if we were all related.
1: I I loved the way that that that, that weaved in. I'm going to sneak a couple more questions in here um, quickly if we can because there are just a couple more things I really want to make sure we talk about. And one comes back to um, I think the sort of idea of collision that we were talking about before at the heart of stranger care. It's it's a pretty unflinching excavation of uh, privilege and opportunity and and class in a way, Um, the clarity with which you show us a system that exists to remove a child from her birth mother to support that birth mother, to regain the right to the child, but then remove all those supports all over again. Um, You call it a built-in incentive to relapse. And there's an extraordinary excavation also of very nation ideas of this kind of biological collectivity and, and evidence of a communal self in stranger care and I started to think about what happens what what might happen in the space where all the structures and systems of the society in which we live which has things like built-in incentives to relapse as part of the deal collides with the realization and potential of embracing an idea like communal self of really reframing how we do all this living you know in, in some ways it's like saying when we're surprised that we discover squirrels have memory, we're coming late to the party.
0: Mm -hmm. The rest
1: of the, you know, ecosystems or whatever you want to call those systems, they all know about all the interconnectivity. We treat everything not just as ourselves as as an exceptional species but as these really little individual bits that have, you know, that are kind of going to operate in isolation in a way. And it, it seems to me that there's something really necessary about saying, take this bigger picture really urgently, take this bigger picture, whether it's about, um, you know, whether it's about the particular relationship of three-way relationship of you and Eric and Coco and Evelyn or whether it's about how we manage the very changing planet that we're on and, and all of the, the parts of that story as well.
2: Sorry, yeah, that's a I... large
1: question to throw at you. No, what I'm telling you is the last <laughs> few minutes.
2: <laughs> I, I think it's a question about um, two of the b- biggest concepts for me in, in the book, which are complicity and belonging mm-hmm. and holding those together. Uh, when, when people found out we were going to be foster parents, they would say to us, I always thought I wanted to do that, but I really wanted a child of my own. And um, I think the message of, that I learned and, and the at the heart of stranger care is that all, all these children are already ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, we made the world. That landed them in in foster care. People ask me, "Oh, how would you fix the foster care system?" And my response is, "End poverty. If you end <laughs> poverty, you're not going to have kids in foster care for the most part. If you have adequate, um, you know, drug rehabilitation programs, if you have uh, access to health care, if you have housing, if you have um, living wage, um, you know, poverty really mimics uh, neglect. Uh, I think and." families that end up in the foster care system are stressed because of all of the social structures that have failed them already. Uh, so there's that sense that I, I discovered my own complicity or didn't discover. I had to sit with my own complicity in creating the world that landed Coco in foster care, creating the world that, that um, gave Evelyn the life that she has, which is filled with suffering and abuse and pain and, um, and neglect and need and so I, I am responsible and complicit in that. I'm, I'm complicit in wanting to keep a child that doesn't belong to me um, and wanting to think in, in believing that I would be a better mother than the mother that she was born to. And I also belong to Coco, even though she isn't mine. And I belong to Evelyn, even though she isn't mine. And so trying to hold those together, complicity and belonging, um, is, is really uh, what's at the core of this story.
1: It's impossible not to finish Stranger Care with its beautiful epilogue um, without asking the largest and maybe hardest question of what happens next.
2: Yes. Um, so I don't want to spoil it too much for readers, but I will say that um, I'm still in contact with Coco. Uh, we, we are Zooming with her every Thursday morning um, Eric and I have an elaborate set of head head headwear that we wear on our zoom calls (laughs) and, and toys that we have and that Coco has, and we get to see her, which is beautiful. You know, it's this beautiful, beautiful moment of connection um, until the screen goes dark. And then it feels like losing her all over again. Um, And then the other news is that uh, we're parents. Again, we welcomed uh, a little boy into our family um, who we've adopted and it's an open adoption and we know his birth family as well. So it's a very expanded sense of family, which is really beautiful. And I think the foster care system could learn a lot from um, ethical open adoption practices. The agency we worked with is extremely ethical. Um, so that feels beautiful um, and filled with joy and delight. This little one is filled with joy and delight. So um, we hold those together, grief and joy um, and I try to remember that um, this story is not about me. It was hard for me to live through and I have all the privilege that one can have, pretty much every single privilege I have it. Um, and that is important to remember that if it was hard for me, just imagine how hard it is for people without those privileges and for the mm-hmm. 500,000 children trapped in the foster care system in the United States and the people who love them and who are trying to care for them.
1: Sarah, I can't thank you enough for the chance of exploring both Stranger Care and Creation Stories, your beautiful and powerful essay for Griffith Review with you today. It has been such a pleasure and a privilege. Um, I wanted to finish now with the closing paragraph from Creation Stories, which I think is about the best set of words that anyone could carry with them to Mm. inspire and to clarify and to underscore what's possible and what's necessary in the world at the moment. You write, we are all artists and the muscles of our visionary minds are growing stronger and stronger. With every word, every piece of clay, every brushstroke, every stitch, we create that imagined world and we choose to live there now. Can you feel it spinning into being? Can you hear its song? Will you answer its call? Sarah Santelis, thank you so much for all of this.
2: Thank you, Ashley. It's been such a gift to talk with you and I look forward to the next time we get to connect.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the RISE Fund, an Australian government initiative, and the New South Wales government through Create New South Wales. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com.